Welcome to the SCBWI Podcast Conversations, a series of long-form discussions with some of the most influential and interesting people working in children's books. My name is Theo Baker, and if you like hysterical YA romances about modern teens finding their way through the dataverse to real feeling, and who doesn't, you'll love today's guest, Becky Albertalli. From her breakout debut, Simon and the Homo Sapien Agenda, and the entire Simonverse, to her latest love triangle musical theater opus, Kate and Waiting, there's a laugh and a feel on every page. I spoke with Becky in January of 2022, and we discussed comedy, her craft, the internet, so much more. Please enjoy. If you could, could you just tell me a little bit about where you come from? And you can answer that any way you'd like. So I come from the suburbs of Atlanta. You know, I'm sitting right here in my room in Roswell, Georgia, which is about 20 minutes or so from where I grew up. And a lot of my books are set uh, in and around my hometown. So I grew up in a suburb called Sandy Springs. Uh, Sandy Springs is uh, the basis for Shady Creek, which is where um, my Simon verse books are set. You know, I feel like one of the things that's been really interesting about writing books that are set in these places that I feel are so specific. Like a lot of times these details are anchored in actual uh, places that I used to go to and spend time at growing up. Um, But everybody I found in every suburb of Atlanta, including suburbs that I've never been to, think that it's about their suburb. So Either I have tapped into something um, that is universal to the northern Atlanta suburbs or all of the northern Atlanta suburbs might be a little bit alike. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I'm sure connects all your work to your readers is your ability to just tap into these memories. Can you tell me a little bit about what teenage years were like for you or what kind of person you were or just anything that comes to mind from those those dreaded years oh my gosh Uh, (laughs) I I think I was exactly who you would expect me to be if you know me now like there is um you know a a pretty direct straight line and bald from teen me to current me I was not cool um you know, I write these rom-coms and I want to be very clear that I myself was not uh, having a rom-com. I was not getting any action. I was making out with absolutely no one. But these rom-coms were living in my head as a teenager. I was just very earnest and you know, not super confident about, I mean, about anything. I, I You know, I always felt like I was um, not doing teenagerdom right, Um, but I was missing, I guess, missing the teenage bone. I I don't know. But at the same time, you know, there were these moments during those years that were so wonderful, exhilarating, um, just moments that, that kind of sear into your brain. Um, I remember certain things so clearly. Um, 
you know, being about to step onto a stage, I was absolutely a theater kid. Not like the leading lady kind of theater kid. I got a lead role once uh, senior year, but typically, you know, I was in the chorus. Like I was townsperson. Um, I was, you know, Harry Ishmaelite. In- <laughs> <laughs> so you said not, ha- I didn't have like a teenager bone. And I find that very interesting. Were you kind of like watching? Was it like, you're like, I don't know how to like go out there and do this teenager stuff, but like, I see it all. Would that be a fair way to talk about how it felt to you? It was, it was kind of like that in the sense that I felt like I was watching. I felt like everybody around me had figured something out that I hadn't figured out. But, um, you know, I wasn't so much removed from it, watching from a distance. I was like watching from right in the middle of it, kind of (laughs) like, you know, and I have since found out it is really interesting you know, getting in touch and talking to people who you knew uh, years and years ago. Um, a lot of times, you know, people who I thought completely had it together, had figured everything out, were uh, cool in ways that I could not even fathom, were, you know, more uncertain sometimes than I realized. And I, I mean, you still do, I still do this as an adult. Um, I think it's human nature to some extent to do this where, you know, you see everybody else's highlight reel, like that's not a new concept or anything, mm-hmm. but I felt that profoundly as a teen. I think, you know, just feeling like, why can't I figure this out? That was like my core mood of, of like that entire period of my life. Right. You feel like there's like a whole book or something that somebody has that you didn't have or like there's a a manual or a a whole world of experience you're like where did they learn this right Mm -hmm. (laughs) um were you uh writing in journals then or reading or what were you what was your kind of budding literary life like at that time yeah I well I've always been a bookworm like I learned to read pretty early and um have always loved reading as you know, one of my um, default activities, like if there is empty time, like I, there's a decent chance I'm going to be like filling that time with reading. Uh, When I was little, I used to, (laughs) I would read just like stacks of books about animals. I had this thing where for a period of time, I did not like books that had people in them. I only wanted animals. I did not want like even the presence of one person would like tear me out of like the animal immersive world and then kind of moved toward um you know certain series that I found you know that were just formative for me I guess I I, like I loved kind of getting to know certain characters really well over time I knew like Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield from Sweet Valley and I knew the entire Babysitter's Club as well as I knew my own heart you know (laughs) Mm. I was writing in journals and I have my journals and I think you know that's one of the gifts that I gave myself Mm. as an author without even realizing it because like the first thing I did when I sat down to write a novel for the first time which ended Mm. up being Simon um my debut I sat down and read my teenage journals from 
start to finish um, just to get myself in that headspace. And um, I think if you read my journals, like you might mistake them for a Becky Albertalli book, just kind of one without a plot, but not all my books <laughs> have plots to begin with. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that, that journaling part, right, going back and looking at it to get you back into that, that space of it, it's, especially with high school, it's amazing how, how little the divide is, right? We still carry so much of that. It's like you see people from high school again in the present day, boom, you're back there in a second. Um, it's so vivid and you're, all the same pains and hurts and kind of pettinesses come right back out. It's amazing how shallow we, we keep all that stuff. I just want, this is just my own curiosity, animal immersive. What was it about people that, or animals? Why, why no people allowed? Okay. So I have a theory. I don't know. I, there's no way to confirm this, but I, okay. like, I've thought about that question because I'm like, you know, something that's just like, yeah, like Becky, you were a weird kid in many ways. And this is one of the ways, but um, you know, I think some of it is, like because when a human character is like introduced and you know this character is supposed to be like the stand-in for me like that should be theoretically my point of access to this story and I think it was hard for me as a kid for a period of time to like see the distance between me and this character like you know it wasn't this character was not exactly me and so mm. that pulled me out of the story I don't know if that's true you know it, it is very hard to remember like what was in my head at, at that point but I know that that was uh, a thing that came up for me as a reader as I got older though for sure um, where you know particularly with romance and love stories and that's always like what I've gravitated to as a reader as a consumer of you know movies and um, other types of art it felt like you know walking on a tightrope sometimes there it, it was so easy to fall out of the story um, you know, a lot of that um, for me was tied to like body image stuff. You know, I felt like to be fully 100% invested in the story, I had to, you know, I had to believe that it, it could be about me. Mm. That makes sense. Thank you for taking us through there. So uh, I want to ask you about theater. When did you realize, or could you tell me about just an early experience with theater and wanting to get involved with it and what it, what it meant to you? Yeah. I mean, I was shy. I was a pretty um, quiet little kid um, and I'm introverted. I just am. And I remember, you know, just I, I think the first time I was in a school play was like sixth grade. I might have done camp plays or something like that before then. But, you know, theater really um, was the thing that helped me survive middle school and high school, you know, that was some of it was just pulling together some kind of version of myself that I could like put on 
to get through the day um so it's just like a walking broad nerve you know in like in um you know the halls of Ridgeview Middle School Riverwood High School um yeah like I and I loved it and, and I was not you know I was not the lead I um I love being a part of the ensemble and kind of being mm. a part of the entire process of it, you know, getting to play around in this alternate world. But it wasn't like I was up there um, wowing everybody, like, you know, like party party guest number six or whatever, you know, <laughs> was, um, not always the focus of every scene, <laughs> perhaps. But, um, you know, I think that was just a really precious kind of space mm. for me um, yeah. and by the time I was in high school it was like you know you spend so much time in rehearsals you get to know your fellow theater kids so well and you just like have this little found family kind of experience I think um, so I was um, just a very committed theater kid in high school yeah, I remember saying once to one of my friends, I think we were like in high school, like in real time, like talking about this. And I was like, I was like, for me, like, I, um, I think all of my best moments or when I'm the happiest is when I am in school during non-school hours, you know, like play mm. rehearsal, performing, just or that period of time before the performance starts when you're just like running wild throughout the halls or whatever, or set design, or, you know, or when I'm supposed to be in school and I'm not because I like skip school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I totally feel that that all-encompassing thing, right, where that intense bond that you have when you're working on a shared mission, and that can come from a lot of different places uh, as well. And I'm curious, did you have any aspirations at that point? Were there, were there any glimmerings of your future life, who you are now? Looking back on it now, could you see the path that you took to become who you are now? Were there any glimmers of it or hints of what was coming? There definitely were. I, I didn't always remember having those thoughts, but some of them I stumbled upon in journals and it's really mm. like almost eerie but in general like I was definitely a kid who went through just a whole list of, of jobs that I felt like you know might be the one including definitely went through a period where I wanted to be a playwright I wanted to be a vet for a while but I very quickly realized that that involved like Blood. A lot of medical training and blood and dissection <laughs> yeah. and like things that like were gross and not interesting to um, my young mind, but I yeah I wanted to be a pet store employee at one point. <laughs> oh um, yeah, there's no formaldehyde, and you just get to help pets. Speaking of pets, too, my cat is about to join us. Oh, uh, any great! Minute, so <laughs> but, yeah, they always find the computer right when you're working on it. Oh, she like, does not miss a meeting. She's very dedicated. So, is um, she your writer writing familiar? Does she mm -hmm. kind of hang out while you're working? Always, yeah. Yeah, does she give you kind of uh, a boost every now and then when you need it, or or is she the disruptor? Absolutely a disruptor. <laughs> She's <laughs> really truly not helpful, but um, <laughs> but she is a very sweet cat. <laughs>
you know, it's, it's interesting to think about kind of the path that I took. If I were to travel back in time and kind of fill in the gaps of my life, you know, for an audience of like my younger self at various ages, I think the only version of me that would believe it is like elementary school me would be like oh yeah mm. of course you're an author like that's that was the plan like we we were totally gonna write children's books and mm. you know I like I even have a journal entry I wrote when I was like 10 or something and it it basically like the confidence in that journal post the certainty that I was going to be an author I was going to write children's books like I think I thought I was going to be writing for a slightly younger audience than I actually am. But other than that, like, general me would not be surprised. Like, every other mm. version of me, though, would be very, very surprised. And I think that's because at some point I just internalized this idea that being an author wasn't an actual, like, career that real people could have like that mm. was just you know it was kind of like being a princess um, or <laughs> um or and I remember even being like oh it's like being yeah I'm like it's not real though it's like being an actress but now I know that that's also real um, but, well so at some point I kind of was like well okay you know when I think about like my college major and what I want to study and kind of moving into a profession that makes sense for me um, that's kind of how I ended up in psychology becoming a psychologist and then it was almost like as soon as I finished my training you know I um, you know basically like finished my postdoc worked a little bit longer and then had this total career flip almost without realizing it until it happened. Well, tell me, tell me about, it makes sense. Psychology makes sense for you because it's, you know, you're hearing stories and helping people through things. And from the outside, from where I stand, it, it makes sense. But tell me about how that flip occurred and how long it took or what, whatever you had to get through. Be like, hey, I'm going to like start writing Simon versus the Homo sapien agenda and like I'm going to explode through this whatever barriers I've set up for myself. Yeah you know it, like that's such a great question because it's basically one of those situations where um, I don't know if it would have ever happened like I don't know if I would have been able to um, make the choice to push through those barriers on my own, but life circumstances kind of positioned me in such a way, suddenly a choice that made a lot of sense in a way it hadn't before. So, so what happened was I, you know, I had a baby, I had my um, first kid, uh, he's nine years old now, but you know, I was working as a psychologist. He was born in June. Um, I was at a school, the school, like, you know, the school calendar worked really well with when my kid was born. Um, that was really lucky. So I kind of had a period of time where I was staying home with him, doing a little bit of like freelance work, doing like psych testing and, and some other stuff occasionally. And um, I was absolutely planning on going back to work as a psychologist you know, we were living in DC. Um, so I 
I mean, in order to afford our house, um, I like it. It just wasn't. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't an option. But um, you know, somewhere like during that period of time, um, you know, staying home with this baby, and you know, beginning to think about, are we wanting to have another baby? Like I had always wanted to have more than one kid um so they could be siblings um but you know it felt increasingly difficult to imagine being able to pull that off in dc when neither of our families were there Mm, um and so somewhere along the line we decided we were going to move to atlanta closer to my family we also spend a lot of time in upstate new york with his family as well, but um, I feel like I'm not, I, I'm making this story like longer than it has to be. Basically, <laughs> like basically the, the gist of it is like, you know, we decided we were gonna move to Atlanta. Uh, I wasn't gonna be able to find a psychology job um, that was chill with me up and moving to Atlanta in a couple of months. Um, so I had this period of time where uh, I knew we were going to move. Mm. I couldn't like really find uh, work that would, um, you know, it, it just wouldn't make sense. Not a lot of three month. Me. Yeah, well, not, yeah. Not a lot of three month gigs for psychologists. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I just was like, all right, I'm going to give it one shot. Then I've always wanted to try to write a book. I've never finished writing a book. I've never pursued publishing in any kind of serious way. Um, So I wrote my draft assignment over a period of a couple of months uh, during my son's nap times. And I um, like just- So you had an infant and a, a new, you know, helpless little basically placental being who, who needed you sort of to yeah, 20, well, he yeah. Was, yeah I don't think I, I didn't start writing it until he was like one I feel like because they're still pretty helpless at one yeah yeah he was finally like sleeping a little bit and I think that's when um my brain found the space right your brain yeah you got you you've gotten some six hours five hours a night of sleep maybe you're <laughs> you're back you're back to something approaching a normal sleep cycle and so you wrote and you started writing during his nap times and was it good right away or did you was the writing you were doing um coming out did you as soon as you started were you like hey I'm on to something that's a complicated question because I you know I I should also mention too when I say I it was the first time I tried to write a book Mm -hmm. um I had been writing Mm. Uh, continuously for my whole life it was just usually like fan fiction I'd written some novel length fan fiction before Mm. Um, and I had written little stories and things like that so um, it wasn't my first time trying to write a story but you had the Um, chops there you had some chops to to fall back you know you're like I can do this sort of I mean I didn't (laughs) feel like while I was doing it I didn't feel like I could I definitely did not um, I never really thought I was gonna publish it I kind of thought I would regret not trying but Mm. um yeah I and I wasn't sure I would finish it um because I'd never made it all the way before Mm -hmm. 
before you're like kind of getting frustrated and um, just putting it aside and not coming back to it. But yeah, I, I remember there were a couple of things that I had to go back and edit that I maybe would catch more quickly now. It's, it, it is, it's very hard for me to like judge the quality of my own writing because, you know, particularly my earliest stuff and Simon and stuff, you know, I, I can hardly, I can hardly read it. I don't know if I can oh. sit down and read that book, you know, cause it's just, you, you can think of a word or two or three or the entire sense, like you would change a million things on every page, you know? Um, I would word things differently now, but, you know, I wrote it when I wrote it. And um, if I wrote it now, it would be a very different book for better or for worse. So, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't want to, like, look back on it and mm-hmm. cringe and think about all the things I would change because, like, I'm glad that I wrote it at a time when I wrote it like that, if that makes sense. Sure. And I'm going to jump out of sequence because I want to actually ask you about this because it's such a thing that writers deal with. They're so self-critical and so self-aware and so self-analytical that when you're writing day in, day out, you're like, I, I this. how do you, what do you do to keep yourself moving forward um, past those kind of doubts, those daily doubts that we all have every single sentence, every single word? How do you kind of, how do you go forward? Ah, that is an ongoing uh, problem <laughs> for me. <laughs> it, I, I struggle with that a ton. Um, I have to actively remind myself um, over and over and over that like this draft, like this draft that I'm writing right now, like nobody has to see it until I send it. Like there's nobody like reading and reviewing it right now. Um, but yeah, there is this inhibition um, when I'm sitting there with the document open where I'm like, why is this not coming out the way a good book sounds like in my head? I feel like I know a little bit about what shape I want this to take. And it is like definitely not coming out in that shape. It is, you know, it it is every first draft. It is like the absolute, like it is not, you know, a fresh insight about the writing process. Like everybody struggles with the fact that like, you know, you just can't really poop out a first draft that is at the level that, you want it to be and I think some of our expectations are informed by a just the books we consume which are usually um you know edited and final Mm -hmm. versions um or even now I'm reading a lot of books early but they're still you know close to final they are not first drafts and I'm like comparing them in my head against you know whatever garbage I've like you know, thrown into my Word document today. But also, too, it's like there is this tendency to compare the new book with even like my old books, um, even knowing I'm like, I actively know that I'm like intellectually that like every single one of these books, I had that same experience where I'm like, this first draft is garbage. And then I like gradually through the editorial process, I have an incredible editor, uh, Donna Bragg, I've worked with for all of my, every single one of my books, you know, and by the time I've come out the other end of it, like I, I at least feel like, okay, it's ready to go. Like, you know, it may not be the, um, 
you know, the great American novel, you know, like I'm just like never going to feel a hundred percent like wowed by my, my own writing, I think, but I feel like I am ready to send it off into the world. Um, and then I start the next one and open up the document and I'm like, I forgot how to write. Oh, <laughs> what I'm do I worst, do? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm the worst writer on earth. Like how come that book I just sent off into the world was like so polished and this new one that I'm trying to write is garbage and I'm like because it's my first draft. We've been talking with Becky Albertalli. There's plenty more coming up after the break but if you're a fan be sure to read her collabs with Adam Silvera, What If It's Us and its follow-up, Here's to Us, and her collab with Aisha Saeed, Yes, No, Maybe So. And do check out her website, beckyalbertalli.com for all the latest and all the linkages. Okay, let's get back to the show. In your books, you seem very aware of like what's going on in the online world for teenagers or being online. And Simon starts with like this kind of online thing that totally devastates him and throws him into, into the world of the book. I, I would just ask like, this is just kind of a general question about like how you've approached that, that kind of the way that teens, modern teens straddle these, the real world and this online world, which we now have definitive proof of is actively harming them and hurting them. And, and I would just love to hear like what you think about how you approach in your books, like the modern reality of like how teens deal with this internet thing that's taken over the, taking over the real world. Yeah, I, you know, I almost think that's one of the like fundamental questions um just at the center of all my work, it's at the center of all contemporary YA writing, at least, whether we choose to engage with it or make the choice not to. And there are some ways that people have like brilliantly sidestepped it. But um, yeah, I tend to lean all the way into it. And it has been, um, yeah, a little bit challenging at times. Um, my perspective uh, has, you know, moved around in different ways um, from book to book. And just over the years, you know, the internet itself has changed a lot, even since I've been writing and publishing. I think, you know, it's always been um, something I found really interesting, like a space that fascinates me like some of it's just on like a language level like I just I love the way teens talk online um mm. not even just teens too just even as adults we've kind of adopted like, we use our language don't we yeah yeah and it evolves and it's it's so interesting and kind of now um more and more just the way memes are used you know I guess these memes that take off in various online spaces and on different platforms and kind of how um, they they become like absorbed into the way we talk. Um, and that's both the way we talk online, the way we type, but also uh, verbally sometimes. I just, I think it's, uh, oh, I think it's fascinating. I read, there's, uh, there's a book that I was just like obsessed with and I am blanking on the author's name. It's a nonfiction book, but it's called Because Internet. 
is I, I'm like mm. that book. You know, it, it is like straight up a nonfiction book. It's about just evolving language and humor and stuff on the internet. I finished it and then started it over and read it again, like you do with like just a novel <laughs> or something that you're obsessed with i was just like this book is amazing like because internet because um, internet. gretchen mcculloch thank okay you. Yeah. all right oh it's such a yeah that's such a great book um yeah so i don't know i i just like you know there's this kind of tumblr speak from a couple of years ago it's just like mm -hmm. to me that's like it, it's like poetry. i miss tumblr tumblr was so I, sweet yeah i didn't think one about tumblr but like you know tumblr's not always sweet <laughs> no but, but it, it felt better yeah, a little sometimes it did yeah well and also it's just yeah it's just the the phrasing the kind of the use even even like on the punctuation level and stuff and like the um it like there is something poetic about it to me i just like i just love it um and you know i am older than social media you know mm -hmm. and that is i would say one of the biggest differences between my high school reality and the kids that i write about you know i it's it's so funny like that aspect of uh, my experience like if i'm like what if i were to think of a ya book that really like you know, speaks to what that was like um, when I was growing up. I'm like, well, Concrete Rose by Angie Thomas, um, which is a historical <laughs> book, technically. <laughs> I'm like, um, yeah, yeah, I'm like, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah it's like, how is like, yeah, Young Maverick Carter is uh, immensely relatable to me in, in that way because there's just something about, I guess, that we've got like an analog childhood you know but gradually um internet became more and more a part of it and then instant messenger and i feel like we're about the same had the same experience where it was like mostly analog childhood and then it started to become then there was like aol aim and then like as soon as we we're done being educated the world it was digital but yeah like i we're like the last people to sort of have a completely analog childhood or at least up until like 10 or 11. Yeah, that's about, yeah. Like, would you say you're like an exennial? I'm between, I'm between, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 1980. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, no, I, I would I'm call in... that, I would call that exennial. Yeah, so I am, yeah, I'm 1982. All right, yeah, so we're, you're kind of more millennial, but like still in the, the borderlands. It's, yeah, like technically, if you, the cutoff point, I am technically a millennial, but, um, it, yeah, there are certain um, kind of, you know, the older millennials, like I'm an old millennial, you know, so the older <laughs> millennial experience versus the um, younger millennial experience, which is a huge generalization because there's not just one experience, you know, but the internet stuff is so different now than it was even, I think, for the younger millennials and so different for the younger millennials and for the older millennials. And um, it's just something I'm like never tired of learning about and, and reading about. And, you know, it's, it's also so, um, it can be very different depending on um, cultural context and access 
to technology, access to financial and socioeconomic um, differences and regional factors and stuff. So there really is a lot of fluidity around it. And you can even see that sometimes in the way people talk about YA books and Mm -hmm. um, social media. Like you will have some people find certain social media interactions like profoundly relatable um, and then that same interaction will feel very dated to somebody else who is kind of part of a community or social group that has kind of moved on to a different platform or just engaging kind of differently um, and both of those reactions are so valid I find that so interesting well what I find really interesting about your work what I was thinking about there's a line in in um Kate and Waiting, where she talks about the drama teacher being having a revolutionary idea, which is actually being interested in what the kids are into. And that's something that I, I feel very strongly about your work. You seem very fascinated with letting the kids kind of lead the way. These kids now are doing, are actually really being revolutionary in their online and analog spaces, the way that they're redefining. Uh, gender for themselves, redefining uh, their identities, redefining the language, redefining the relationships uh, between the real world and the online world. And you work a lot writing from a, a really authentic queer voices and dealing with kind of complicated platonic relationships and how you enter the kind of rapid change that the teenagers are enacting every day and and find sympathy in it and relatability yeah i i mean i think that's a really interesting thing to uh consider just from a craft perspective even um you know as so as an adult writing about teenagers um and i think most but not all but certainly most uh people writing for teenagers are adults it's like you are kind of uh, living two lives at once or you're playing two roles at once. You're engaging with this material uh, from two different angles at all time. And by you, I mean me, because I actually don't know. Like for other authors, if it's like, I assume it's not universal because nothing is, you know. So on on the one hand, I am an observer, you know, and I, I find just a lot of these dynamics really interesting and charming and impressive. I am like, you know, really in awe of a lot of the ways that current teens and I do feel, um, you know, very much in awe of, of the way teens engage with the world as activists, as just, you know, critical thinkers and, um, a sort of like fluidity in the way um, the roles that um, that they can play in relationships and kind of how they can define themselves, you know, what kinds of identities they get to claim as their own. Um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated seeing these conversations from the outside. Um, but at the same time, there is this other piece of it where, in my head, I, I'm not like fully formed. I'm not really just an observer looking in from the outside. I am 
you know, a part of this world, if not the, you know, specific like teen world, I am a part of like social media and discourse. I don't always Mm -hmm. like being a part of discourse, but, um, you know, I, um, it's inescapable at this point, right? The discourse. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, yeah. So there is this like, you know, recalibration that happens or just, you know, a engaging with, you know, just communities of, of teenagers, but also just sort of the broader communities like Twitter, you know, or various like subcultures within that, you, you know, you, you kind of take these ideas um, and they're not just like these static things that you can like pick up and look at like they are you know this information um is something that you can you know integrate and and um you know use it to look back um and think differently about some of your own Mm. experiences you know was a lot that i uh (laughs) didn't understand about myself when i was younger you know, without the internet functioning the way it does now. And, you know, I think there is some value to remaining open to keeping that door cracked open a little bit. Yeah. I want to ask you about, on a sentence-to-sentence level, most of your sentences are hysterical. Uh, You're a a really funny, really... uh, you know, for me, like I, I'll read your books and it's as far removed from my, uh, you know, lived experiences as, as is possible. But like I can read your books because they're just hysterical. I'll laugh out loud. And so I want to ask you about like how you approach humor and because and, a lot of your humor really is language based. It's not always so situation based. The, the humor from, uh, comes from like your manipulation of the language and your your rhythms of the language and your rhythms of the character's thinking. Could you talk about, I don't know, what role humor plays in writing for you? Like, I'm like gonna cry. This is, (laughs) thank you so much. I'm absolutely trying to make it funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like, you know, you come out of the editorial process having read everything like 50 million times. And so I like, it's very hard to feel like you're funny uh, because the jokes don't surprise you anymore, you know? So you're like, Ooh, hope like that still catches somebody. (laughs) But uh, so it's great to hear that. I, I think like, you know, a lot of times when it comes to crafting the humor, some of it is like letting the characters take the wheel a little bit. Like that part becomes a little bit more, uh, organic once you catch the character's voice and you know like um, how they think and how they talk and you know and how they specifically use language and um, and then play them off of each other um, I like I, that is like a part of the process that I love I just I, I find that to be the most fun and um yeah, you know, humor is definitely something that is like very like it has to um as I'm writing it, you know, like I'm very very like particular about the way things are worded um and it's 
it's really one of those things though that like you know I have to hit my own target and accept that like it is just straight up only gonna be funny to some people and it's just not going to be at all fun. like the jokes just will not land with some people you just have a different sense of humor than some people and like that has to be okay you know there are definitely a lot of readers I think who and I you know I this isn't just about my books and I'm actually very good at avoiding reviews of my books that I'm not tagged in but um good for you yeah yeah yeah, like you know, I, had, I had to touch the stove yeah. <laughs> times a couple of years ago, but um, you know, but I will see, you know, the way certain readers will talk about, you know, other books that kind of have what I would think of as a similar style to me, which is that kind of like um, conversational, voicey, sometimes, um, sometimes funny, sometimes not. But like, mm-hmm. there are definitely some readers who are just like. Um, so this is bad writing, you know, and I think that's because, well, I, I obviously don't think it's <laughs> bad writing, um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, what really clicks for certain readers is going to be just a completely different style. You know, yeah. it might be much more formal, third person fantasy very um oh yeah the wizard with one eye strode and towards the mountain and as the sun mm-hmm. came down and yeah no. yeah it's it's one of those things that's you know when you step back from it a little bit it's one of the most beautiful and exciting things about being a writer any kind of artist I, I imagine but like you know just the specificity of like what works for you and being able to create something that is going to land in just the right way with certain people and not others and and that's exciting as a reader as well when you're in the thick of it it is hard sometimes like it's hard to yeah to push out those voices not not feel like the goal is to please every single person and and if you fall short you're failing i was i was struck by the the way the the phrase you used for it catching the character's voice i i think that's really apt it's like a little butterfly and I think this is so important could you just kind of tell me about your process for catching you can even be specific about it or for catching that voice when it clicks for you and you're like I've got access now I know the way the rhythm their mind works at or can you just tell me about like how you find that entryway into a character even like a secondary character it's been different for every book first of all I should say like And it seems to be a combination of things. Like the biggest thing, um, unfortunately, is for me, trial and error. (laughs) (laughs) To some extent, I just have to like force myself to just keep writing and write my way into it. And then eventually, uh, as I'm going, you know, into the story through that character's eyes, like I start to get a better understanding of you know what they sound like in their head and what they sound like in dialogue and same is true for the secondary characters who um, I am getting to know through them it is very frustrating it's not so much that I mind the part where I go back and rework the beginning to make that consistent I don't mind that what's what's so frustrating is getting there in the first place it's like if to to sit there and write especially a like first person point of view 
theoretically a close first person point of view about a stranger i'm like who who are you like how like how do you expect me to write about you when you're not telling me anything <laughs> like I, yeah. I have to make you up like but oh my god like fan fiction did not have that problem mm. <laughs> you know right. like something to write towards <laughs> right I, I get that it's almost right there's that kind of freedom that comes with fan fiction like it's there and i can just I, the pieces are already set up i can just move them you know right mm-hmm. and there's exactly. nothing you don't have that flatness right that that horrible flatness right when you're starting something mm-hmm. and you're like there's no juice here no juice it's just i'm just pushing things or pushing paper around or whatever it is and how do you know when you found it just when it starts to take off on its own yeah well i almost don't know until until later like it, it's mm. like it's something that i have to kind of go back and read through and like when I start to evaluate a line you know as I'm as I'm going back through and I'm like "Mm, this feels off you know this doesn't sound like her then that's actually really an exciting moment in the process because Mm -hmm. it's like there is a her to work towards finally and it doesn't mean it's gonna be like easy to get there once I kind of know and it's not totally clear cut it's still going to be a little bit foggy there's still um, always going to be room to get closer and closer to like nailing that voice and that understanding of their internal thought processes but um, yeah like I wish I had a, a, a process that works every time sometimes I'll try to reassociate like backstory I will like sit there with a notebook or a blank document and I will just like type without trying to think of how or if it could work in the story Um, just trying to find a way another another door inside inside their heads Um, you know I will um, also do like sometimes I will lead with the dialogue like I will write out a scene before I write it that's just basically I call it my screenplay Mm. um, where it's just the dialogue beats back and forth or sometimes there's a little bit of scenery I'll make a note for myself like or I'm just like she stands up you know we're like scowling and like you know (laughs) I have to expand upon that I feel like even when I'm not doing that my very early drafts are a whole lot of like people talking to each other and flirting and eventually like making out in a blank white room (laughs) you know 300 pages you know you write often what you said like a close first person their inner thoughts and there's always this sort of they're usually very fluid and the characters are able to talk to themselves and are very kind of they have that kind of irony and then like I love sometimes how there's such a difference between how they talk to themselves and the words that come out of their mouth to their friends and their family. And I would just kind of ask how you sort of think about with your characters, the mix between that internal life that's happening and that external life. Maybe they act contrary to what they feel or aren't fully integrated or aligned or no, because I think that's actually one of the um, central questions of like developing a character. Um, 
you know, so how I, I would ask myself that, I guess, is something like how similar is the internal monologue to the dialogue um, that tells you a lot about the character. Like when I think about Arthur from What If It's Us and Here's to Us, mm-hmm. he, uh, he has very little filter. I feel like maybe out of all my characters, you know, him, Simon, to a little bit lesser of an extent, but particularly Arthur, the inside and the outside um, are as close to interchangeable. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like very porous. Um, you know, and then I have some characters who are, you know, so guarded, like, you know, Leah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she, um, she holds a lot back. She is like, you know, very um, different, I think, inside her head than when she um, is speaking and interacting with people, you know, and then you have some characters who like, you know, have, um, I, I don't want to say like a um, false self or, or a false persona kind of self, but you have some characters who edit out some of their own like spiraling anxiety and situationally you get like uh, variability in how much that leaks through like how successfully they're able to like hold that in um, and sometimes it just bubbles out I love writing those parts awesome do you have any advice to your you know pre-published self you know a lot of our listeners are sort of are pre-published or putting it trying to finish connecting all those dots to find their unique voice. Uh, If you had, if you could look back to, you know, yourself right before you're putting it all together, if there's anything you would say to yourself or anything you've learned or not learned, anything you've found is unanswerable, anything you'd like to say to kind of anyone like that. Yeah, you know, I think what comes to my mind is actually not a uh, craft, um, you know, a craft question, but this is more of a, um, you know, becoming an author, settling into the author career um, and managing expectations around, um, you know, being an author, being a like person who creates art and also, um, you know, interacts with, readers to whatever extent um you know what I would want to tell myself uh you know if I could tell myself something uh, at the beginning um, and what I'd want to tell people entering the industry you know you um you get to be a person like you you don't owe anybody information that you don't feel comfortable sharing you you know you are allowed to um, explore things in your art without uh, having to present to the world a beat by beat justification Um, I'm not the first person to talk about that and I'm certainly not um, the person who has said it best but I you know, I know that for me, you know, when I think back to 
just would be um, most challenging and most painful parts of, you know, author life have been for me. Um, you know, the seeds for that pain were planted right at the very beginning. Um, mm. You know, so to be specific, you know, I'm thinking about when, you know, assignment was coming out, the um, sense of obligation I felt to, to disclose my positionality to the story. Mm-hmm. I felt that um, readers had a right to know everything about me that could possibly re- be relevant to the story. And I, um, I did not leave myself the space that I would ultimately need to mm-hmm. expand my understanding of myself in the way that naturally happens when you tell stories. So. I just think that that was a really encouraging and profound final final piece of uh, of talk there. Well, that's the program. I hope you were entertained. On behalf of all of us at SCBWI, I'd like to thank Becky for talking with us today. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our totally free show. New episodes just like this one every week. And if you're interested in learning more about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, please head over to scbwi.org. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. This podcast was produced by Avery Silverberg and edited by Samantha Thomas. Thanks so much for listening. Feel free to reach out with your thoughts and suggestions. And be sure to tune in next week. See you then.